0: As we carry on in 1 Peter, we are looking tonight, or beginning to look tonight, at the privileges that we have if we are those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour. And uh, last time we were in the letter, which is a couple of weeks ago now, we saw that genuine spirituality, genuine godliness is always marked by a love for the Word of God, a love for the truth of God. And really, Peter has been exhorting these believers to love the brethren fervently. You see that towards the end of chapter 1. To stretch to the very utmost in their love for one another. And then in the opening verses of chapter 2, he says the believer is to have such strong desires and cravings and longings for the word of God. To stretch to the utmost, as it were. For the word, to long it like a baby desires the pure milk so that they may grow. And really then we see Peter is moved to the Holy Spirit under inspiration. This next section is just so rich. It is full of beautiful truths and images an outpouring of great delight and wonder at what the child of God has been granted in Jesus Christ. And he weaves in and out between one glorious truth after another. And there are also many allusions to the Old Testament and how these promises are fulfilled in Christ, the new covenant, all of these things. It is just a stunning passage of Scripture. And in verses 4 through 10, as I said, he is bringing to us the privileges of being a believer. And he goes through these great privileges that we have if we are those who know Christ, who are in a living relationship with Christ. And often in Scripture we find, don't we, that we are commanded, we are exhorted. But here, Peter takes time to remind us of what is ours through sovereign grace. And friends, it should move us, it should thrill us, it should cause us to delight. And you know, when we speak of privilege, it is those who have benefited from a special favor beyond the advantage of most. And that's certainly true of believers. As those who have been plucked out, we have been brought to a position of special favor, and it's all of grace. We didn't deserve anything. And yet if we're in Christ tonight, God has laid hold of us, he has drawn us to himself, and he has blessed us immeasurably because it is his purpose and his prerogative to do so. And all of those blessings come to us in Jesus Christ alone. And they are vast, they are rich, they are spiritual blessings and privileges. And so just as Peter has been exhorting and moving from these duties and commands, he goes on to encourage the believer to see what they have in Jesus. And so it's not about what we are to do. It is about what the Lord has done for us. And with the glories of the gospel at the center, he brings these realities that the believer has, and we need to have the images clear in our mind so that we understand what he's saying. And really it's the same substance, but it is displayed in different ways so that he gets the point across again and again and again so that you can know the richness that you have in Jesus Christ. And it all starts, verse 4, when he speaks about coming to Jesus, coming to him. That's what begins all spiritual privileges. That's what takes us out of the world and puts us in a place of immense privilege beyond the world can ever know. It's a wonderful statement to come to him. You know, often you hear believers speaking about how they came to Christ. And this is what Peter has in mind. Now, we know, don't we, that the scriptures are clear. None can come to Christ unless God is at work in them. And as God is at work to make alive and to make new, then the individual, the sinner, is drawn. And they come to Christ and trust Christ. It's a wonderful thing. We come because we are unable to come by sovereign grace. But the sinner is made alive. They are given what they need to respond to the gospel. And they come and they trust Jesus. But their lives are never the same. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think of those amazing verses in John 6. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He goes on to say, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Later on in that same passage, it says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He said, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So you see these great gospel commands, and yet you see also the working of God to enable the individual to come. The Bible says that Jesus calls men to come to himself. And so Peter has this in mind and no doubt he could remember those very words of the Lord Jesus. He had been present when the Lord had said those things. And they're very much in his mind. And he says it all begins, all of this privilege begins with coming to Jesus Christ and in him being brought to a place of life and a blessing and a privilege. So the question for you tonight is this, have you come to Jesus Christ? Have you been brought? Have you believed in Christ? Have you turned from your sin? Cast yourself upon him. Do you know that life that is found in Jesus Christ alone? You see, that is where the blessing is. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now it's interesting, when Peter speaks about coming to him, It's not just in that first instance of conversion. It is also much more than that. It is the sense of coming to Christ and remaining in Christ. It is the sense of abiding in Christ, staying in Christ, resting in Christ. Think of John 15, verse 4 Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And the concept there is is of our union with Christ. You see, being a Christian is about being united to Christ. It is about knowing him, Christ's life in you, coming to him, to stay in his presence, to remain in that fellowship and communion with him, You know, in the original language, the word that Peter uses, and also it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, carries the sense of drawing near to God for continuing worship. One form of the word is what we would know as proselyte. It means a a person who was far off being brought near. And in the scriptures, often it refers to a Gentile who was outside the covenant, outside of the promise who is brought to draw near. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it is the word for coming near to God to remain in his presence, to worship him. And so these amazing spiritual privileges begin when you come to the Savior and are sustained as you remain in Christ. And Peter speaks of a very definite move from being outside Christ to fellowship and union with him. That is what makes the difference. You know, you can know about Christ and not be a Christian. You need to be in Christ. You need to be united to him, to believe in him, to be knit to him. And this sets the believer apart from the world, and it's all of grace. And then he develops the picture, because he says, coming to him as to a living stone. And so this living stone is Jesus. So look at verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone. Peter identifies the one to whom we come, and he does so in a way that pulls all this imagery from the Old Testament. And so Peter's thoughts about the privileges are bound up in Christ as the living stone. Tonight we're just going to introduce the concept of all that will follow But he says that as the believer comes to Christ, they come to a living stone and the word describes a stone that is used in a building. A stone that is chiseled and shaped in order that it fits perfectly with the design of the builder. Now in ancient times they would build using stones, it wouldn't necessarily be with mortar, But stones so perfectly fitting together and so heavy that they would stack and fit together to make an immovable structure. And so speaking of Christ, Peter speaks of a stone that is perfectly shaped, perfectly designed, perfectly hewn out to accomplish a purpose. And it's interesting that he calls it a living stone. Now, that is unusual. You know, we don't think of stones as a life. You know, you've heard of phrases like stone dead. Now, stone usually has no life, but this stone is living. And so this perfect stone, this chief cornerstone, is a living stone. Why? Simply because he's speaking of Jesus, who is risen from the dead. He is alive, alive forevermore. He is the conqueror of death. He is alive and he has living relationships with living people. Christ is life. He gives life. He gives his own life to all who believe. Now there's an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 10. It's verse 4. And it says, They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. And Paul there speaks of Christ as the rock in the wilderness from which the water came to satisfy the thirst of the people of God. And so this living stone is Jesus, the perfect building stone on which God can build his church. He is risen, he is alive, he is reigning, he is alive forevermore. And friends, he's here. I hope that you're aware of that. He is with us in the midst. Romans 6, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. In 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five, it speaks of Christ as the last Adam, and Paul says that Christ became a life-giving spirit, He is alive and he gives life. And because he lives, the believer lives. You are alive spiritually if you are in Christ tonight because Christ is alive. It is his life in you. It's interesting if you're to read through the letter of one Peter again. Peter has spoken of a living hope, he's spoken of a living word, and now he speaks of a living stone. And verse 4 literally says, coming to him as to living stone. And the emphasis there is on the quality and the character of this stone. So anyone who is brought into contact with Christ by faith, anyone who receives Christ by faith is made alive with the very life of Christ. This stone lives and gives life. 1 John 15, sorry, 1 John 5, verses 11 to 12. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Do you know what the clear marker is? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And Peter wants to speak of Christ, the sure foundation of the church, and to show how this fulfills the many Old Testament passages that refer to this. We'll see it more as we go through in future weeks, God willing. But the vital point for you to know tonight is this. If you are a believer, all your spiritual blessings, all your privileges are bound up in that living stone, Jesus Christ. There is no blessing outside of Christ. And so, friend, are you in him this night? He is the living stone. And then what follows is the tragedy. Because look at verse 4. Coming to him, ask for a living stone, but then this stone is rejected. Verse 4, rejected indeed by men. The tragedy is that this living stone, this one in whom all spiritual blessing can be known, is rejected by men. That is why those who are in the world, those outside of Christ, don't have these spiritual privileges. They don't have the blessings that we have been granted by grace if we are believers tonight. They have rejected the foundation. They have rejected the only one who can give them life. Do you know, in the first instance, Peter no doubt has in mind the Jewish leaders and the overwhelming majority of those who followed them in rejecting the Lord Jesus. Those who shouted for his crucifixion. Those who wanted him beaten and spat upon Those who wanted him humiliated and murdered. This living stone, this perfect cornerstone in God's building of his eternal house, the one who alone can give life, is rejected by men. And it's utterly tragic. And so it remains amongst all who have rejected him since and even tonight, even you. If you're here tonight and you reject Jesus Christ, it is a tragedy. The picture Peter uses here is striking. In those ancient times when builders started on a building, they would begin with the stones and they would want ones they could fit together. The most important was the cornerstone. You see, the cornerstone would set the lines for the rest of the building. And so the quality of the cornerstone set the standard and the tone for the rest of the building. It was like the plumb line in every direction, looking for that perfect symmetry. And the problem was that if any of the angles were off, the whole building would be affected. It would either be skewed or worse, if the vertical angle was wrong, the whole thing could very easily collapse. Every angle had to be right, and that was set by the cornerstone, and all the other stones had to align with that one. And the idea here is this the leaders of Israel, they wanted to be part of God's spiritual temple and looking for the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus came, the Messiah, and they examined him. And with all of their apparent insight, all of their apparent religious, self-righteous perspective, all the measuring instruments of their man-made laws, they assessed the Lord Jesus. They assessed his suitability to be Messiah who had set the line for the kingdom of God. And their assessment came to the conclusion that Jesus was not adequate. That he did not meet their plans and their calculations and so they rejected him. And the word literally means that they rejected him upon examination, upon testing. Can you imagine? They, in their arrogance, weighed up the Son of God and said, no, not for me. They rejected him. And their rejection was full of contempt with venom and hatred to them. Nothing was so abhorrent than the possibility that Jesus of Nazareth could be the cornerstone of God's kingdom. And they hated him. They hated the way that he exposed their religious system. This friend of sinners, this poor man as they saw it, this man who would die on a Roman cross. It was unthinkable that he could be God's cornerstone. And in their eyes, he could not even defeat the Romans. He could not deliver them, and they rejected him. But even though Jesus was rejected by men, there's a lovely, lovely thing that's said next. Chosen by God and precious. Chosen by God and precious. He is the choice one. He is the elect one. He is precious in the sight of God. You see, God examined him too. God weighed up his own son, took the measurements of his own perfection, set them against his son. And what did he say? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The Lord Jesus, God's appointed deliverer, God's saviour, the elect one, precious above all to God, unique. God looked at Jesus, God looked at his son and said, he is perfection." Every angle is perfect. He is the cornerstone. And God affirmed his perfection. God raised him from the dead, made him the living cornerstone. And you know, when you have them side by side, it only underlines the sinfulness and the ignorance and the stupidity of men. Be clear, Jesus is not on trial. Even though people today, and maybe you, continue to try and measure him up, weigh him up by their own flawed standards. That's why people today continue to reject the perfect one, the one whom God said is chosen and precious, his own son. And the seriousness of that is so clear. You know, if you are here tonight and you think that, you know, it's all about you weighing up Jesus to see if he's worth bringing into your life, you've missed it. Jesus is the Son of God. And he deserves everyone in this place to bow before him. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Do you know in all of his preaching in the early church we see throughout Acts, Peter loved to emphasize this great contrast. He loved to emphasize the fact that though Christ was rejected by men, God accepted him. Let me give you some examples. Acts 2, very well known. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up. You rejected him, God raised him up. Acts 4, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And he goes on, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You reject him, but he's the only way. He is God's way. Acts 5, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand, to be prince and saviour. Acts 10, we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree, but him God raised up. Peter loves the theme. He said, you rejected him, but God affirmed him because he's the chosen one and he's precious he's the living stone and friends if you are here tonight and you still think in your arrogance that you can adequately measure Jesus Christ by your own flawed sinful measurements oh may God have mercy upon you the world despises what God has chosen hates what God loves most the question for us as believers is this why do we then So often do all that we can to have the esteem and acceptance of the world. Why do we run after the world's favour when they hate the one who should be uppermost in our affections? This world could not recognise the most precious, the most perfect person who ever lived. They spat upon him, they beat him, they nailed him to a cross. Yet the only true blessing, dear friends, is found in Christ... And we must come to him to the living stone. And you know, when we come to him in that way, and when Peter draws this together, I just introduce this to you as we close. Verse 5, we are brought into union with Christ because it is staggering what he says next. In verse 5 he says, You also as living stones. You see, it's not just coming to a living stone, but we are made living stones. And what Peter is explaining there is this, that when a person is saved, when they come to Jesus Christ, they are united to Christ and they are made like Christ. As followers of the Lord Jesus, we are being changed into his likeness. What a stunning privilege. Peter says we are living stones. Think about this with me for a little bit. What does it mean that we are living stones? Well, it means that we have eternal life. The very life of Christ exists in you tonight if you're a believer. What a thought that is. You know, we we say it, don't we? But have we ever really thought about what that means? Christ's life in you. It's not just that we worship Christ and obey Christ and love Christ and honor Christ and pray to him. We are united to him. He is the cornerstone and we are stones built up as a spiritual house fashioned together with him. We are part of the same building possessing the same life. It flows from him to us and through us. Peter speaks of this in 2 Peter 1 by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Have you ever thought about the stunning reality that this is. How unique it is. The gospel of Christ, it's the only reality where the one worshipped becomes the very life of the worshipper. No other earthly religion speaks of anything like this. In Christ, we have the life of Christ, we are made partakers of the divine nature. Colossians 3.3, For you died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He is our life. And so it's not just that we worship the Lord Jesus, it's not just that we bow before him, it's not just that he is our saviour and redeemer, we are in him. Sharing his life, eternal life, resurrection life. It's an incredible thought. You have eternal life tonight if you're a believer. And it also means that as living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house. God is building a spiritual house. The cornerstone is Christ. The church of Christ is being built and the Lord is putting all of us in place. We are being integrated with each other, with the life of Christ united to him and to our brethren. Ephesians 2, listen to these words. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, the depth of truth in those verses is staggering. But quite simply, Christ is the cornerstone, the rest of the foundation is the apostles, and the doctrine that came through them sealed in Scripture. And that's why from the outset of the early church, what did they do? They studied the apostles' doctrine. That's the foundation. And the church is founded on that truth. They're teaching as those who taught the revealed word, Christ the cornerstone, the rest the foundation, the apostolic doctrine, and we as believers rise up to be built on that foundation as the very spiritual house in which God himself dwells. That's a glorious truth. We are the spiritual house in which the Spirit of God dwells. Something remarkable happens, not only in that that wide sense and all that is due to take place in the future, but even now as we are gathered together, something incredible is taking place and God dwells in our midst. 1 Corinthians 3 9, you are God's building. You know, the temple was the earthly house, as it were, but Peter says in the New Covenant there is a spiritual house because God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Acts 7.48, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Same thing again, Acts 17. He dwells in a spiritual house. We are the stones that make up that spiritual house. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. God dwells in the hearts of his redeemed people. He dwells in the hearts of those who love him. Hebrews 3, 6, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So Christ, the living stone, the foundation finished off by the doctrine of the apostles, and in perfect symmetry, God builds the house, laying one stone upon another. What did Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Union with Christ, glorious thing. Not the dead stones of the old temple, but living people united with Christ, forged together. And you know, just think for a moment, these believers that Peter is writing to in the first instance, they've been scattered all over the place. They are persecuted, they have been sent far, far away from those areas where they were comfortable, far from the city of the great king. And they may well have felt that they were missing all the special privileges and all that was associated with the temple. You know, that characteristic of the place of the presence of God. But Peter says, no. He says, you don't need to be bound up in those things because there's a wonderful truth. There is a spiritual house being built, and God dwells with you, His presence is with you. You yourselves, you are the living stones in this sacred building, spiritual building. And he is saying to these scattered believers, your identity in Christ is so far beyond what you realize. And they must have been thrilled to see their security in Christ. You know, as believers, we are that spiritual house. God's Holy Spirit dwells in you individually. And also, as we come together, And if he dwells in us individually, he dwells in us collectively, Peter is saying, and he's saying to us, and this is mind-blowing, that believers are at the very heart and centre of God's activity in this world. And so when you come along to a meeting like this, it's not just something to do. It is something of such eternal significance Because God dwells, God is at work, God is building. And we are God's building, God's spiritual house. And so dear friends, this is just introducing this whole matter. But when you became a Christian, if that's your state tonight, the first great spiritual privilege that you received is that you were taken from darkness, brought into the light. You were united to Jesus. You share his life. He lives in you. He lives in you as an individual. He lives in his church collectively. And it's stunning. And what does it mean for us? Well, for one thing, it means that we can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. It means that in Christ, we have the spiritual resources that we need to live for him day by day. When you think about tomorrow, and what it may bring you think well how am i going to get through tomorrow in christ you have all that you need when we think about our life as a church and going forward how do we face the future in christ he will give us what we need and he will equip us with what we need as a church we're being in everything we need right now to worship and live and serve him and we're to be faithful in doing that Romans 15, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. The presence of Christ united with him that enabling and empowering of the Holy Spirit, Christ takes up residence in the life of those who belong to him. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 1, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working." which works in me mightily. It is Christ in me, Paul says. It is Christ working through me. That's what means that I can serve him and live for his glory and exalt him. And so, dear friend, Christ lives through you. He loves through you. He speaks through you. He serves through you. His life is in you. It is eternal. You'll never lose it. His life in you controls you. It conforms you. It provides all you need. It is incredible. You truly have everything that you need in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Do you know, so often I feel what unworthy, what an unworthy vessel I am. But that is what Christ gives to those who come to him as to a living stone. His life becomes our life. And we are built upon him in that spiritual house which is the dwelling place of God. What an exalted privilege. And dear friends, should we not rejoice over the day that we were brought to that living stone? Should it not thrill our hearts as we look back And as we raise our abeneas, as it were, and we can say the occasion when the Lord brought us and we were brought to Christ and we came to Christ and we knew what it was to be forgiven and to be reconciled, rejoicing that we know him and that we abide in him and that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in him and one day we will be with him and we'll see him as he is and it'll be glorious. We are one with Christ. Our life hid with Christ in God. And it's all of grace. And friend, if that doesn't send you on your way rejoicing, I don't know what will. There is nothing that compares to knowing Jesus. And I pray that you would know him. And if you don't, may God open your eyes. May he give you life. And may you run to Jesus and know what it is to be forgiven and to be right with him both now and forever. Amen.